Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world that we We've got a great guest for today's Spirit in Action, but first I wanted to mention a word or two about the work that we do at Northern Spirit Radio. Me, other hosts, the volunteers, our board of directors. On the website, you'll read that Northern Spirit Radio promotes world healing by broadcasting inspirational voices of peace and social justice using the language of personal story, music, and spirituality. Key parts of that are that we want to share with you inspirational voices. While we need to know the bad things that are happening, and we should be thankful to the folks who expose the defects that need to be addressed, a continuous diet of disaster leads to cynicism and loss of hope. So we do something different when you listen to Spirit in Action. We find people making a difference and share with you their story and their spirit, especially in the hope that it will encourage you to be part of the chain of transformation linking the world together. Today's Spirit in Action guest is a great example of that kind of inspiration. The end of April, Eau Claire, where I live, was fortunate to have a visit from Cluclasuria Marius Rukshan Fernando, commonly called Ruki a Sri Lankan human rights activist currently serving as the chair of Rights Now, a collective of human rights defenders in Sri Lanka. Ruki visited the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, but also spoke at a public presentation hosted by Eau Claire's Unitarian Universalist congregation. Ruki's work extends well beyond Sri Lanka to other countries in South Asia, like Nepal, Thailand, and the Philippines, providing training and support for workers for peace and justice through nonviolent means. I'll let him explain the full scope of his work in a bit, but first I'd like to thank Rita Webb and Steve Spina for their roles in bringing Ruki to Eau Claire and for facilitating my interview with him. Right now, I'd like to have you sit in and listen to a few excerpts from his talk at the UU back on April 21st, 2013. Here's a tiny bit of what Ruki Fernando shared that night. The primary reason I am very happy always to speak and to talk and have conversations with people from the United States uh, or any other country for that matter uh, is because I strongly believe that human beings generally care about other human beings, whether they are U.S. citizens caring about Sri Lankan citizens or Indians or Malaysians or British or whether they are Buddhist or Hindus or atheists or whatever, you know, that we care about each other. 
So I think that's why I think I find it meaningful uh, to have conversations about what happens uh, in the United States or what happens in Sri Lanka uh, with people who not necessarily have been there. Some of my work in the past has been uh, protecting journalists who were facing life threats. So like, for example, where I used to come, I've been lucky to come to the United States like almost once a year and sometimes twice a year in the last several years. So one of the things that I always try to do is to visit some of my friends who are in exile, who left Sri Lanka because they felt that they could not live safely in Sri Lanka. So in fact, from here, I go to Washington, D.C. to meet one and to New York to meet another good friend. So one of the, my friends in Washington, D.C. is a journalist who wrote about the war in Sri Lanka. He wrote about children who were recruited forcibly to work as child soldiers. He wrote about a population that faced starvation because of the war, because our government deliberately stopped food from reaching those population during the war. And this journalist was arrested and detained for almost two years. And he was released primarily because of the massive international pressure. That's what I believe. And in fact, it was very interesting that on 3rd of May, 2010, when this journalist was still in detention, your president, President Obama, uh, talked about press freedom, and he particularly cited three journalists as examples. One was from China, and the other one was my friend. His name is Tissa. So President Obama talked about these three people. I can't remember who was the third one. And for us, that was very important because we thought that was one major reason why this journalist got his freedom. And then when he was actually released, he was very sure that he could not live safely in Sri Lanka. Even if he managed to live safely, he could not behave or he could not write the way he used to write. So he would have to give up his independent style of writing. So he fled Sri Lanka and he lives now in Washington, D.C. Another journalist that I will visit in New York is someone also who came to U.S. in 2010, I think. That journalist also used to write very critical things about our government. And he used to work for a, a Sinhalese newspaper, one of the local languages that we speak. We have two languages. And he was threatened. He got lots of threats. So he fled to India in 2009. And then after some months, uh, he left with some other journalist. He decided to come back to Sri Lanka because his wife and daughter were still living in Sri Lanka. His other colleagues and friends told him, don't go back, no? You'll be in deep trouble if you go back. But he was kind of stubborn. He didn't listen. And he was the only one who went back to Sri Lanka after being in exile for three, four months. And a couple of months after he went back, he was uh, abducted when he was traveling by bus. He was taken to a very lonely place. He was beaten up very badly. And we think that he was left almost to die. But luckily he was found by some coincidence by some people very badly beaten up, unable to walk, unable to use his hands, and then he was treated in hospital. And then even after that, he was threatened very badly. And then for the second time, he decided to go into exile, and he came to the U.S. So that's the story of many of my friends and colleagues, actually. So if I go to Paris, if I go to India, if I go to Switzerland, if I go to England, most of the people I visit are these exiled activists and exiled journalists. And for me, it is very sad because in a way I have helped some of them to leave actually. That's been part of my work that I try to do to help people who feel unsafe to leave Sri Lanka. But I'm also very sad about the fact that I help many of these more uh, people with a conscience who cared about other people and who were very courageous and brave to write about the bad things our government was doing and the bad things that the, the Tamil Tigers 
the rebel groups were doing, that these are the people who had to leave Sri Lanka. So in fact, I think I've been responsible to send some of the best Sri Lankans out of Sri Lanka, which is sad. But I hope that the time will come when uh, someday that some of them can come back. Uh, some years back, when the, the rebel group, the Tamil Tigers, who were fighting, who claimed to fight for the liberation of the minority ethnic community in Sri Lanka, that was the way they looked at things as well. They thought that anyone who was very critical of them should be eliminated. And they had actually killed many such uh, dissenting people, critical people from their own community, who were certainly not with the government. So both these groups who fought the war in Sri Lanka did not like people who criticized them. They did not like peaceful, democratic criticism. And the other thing that they, both these groups, the government and the rebels, did not hesitate to do was to target civilians. And I think you in the United States have had your fair share of uh, bombings. And we've had many of that in Sri Lanka as well. The rebel groups thought that this is a very good way to get attention. And maybe some of them thought that this is a very good way to get revenge. Attacking civilians in trains, uh, in buses, in railway stations, in many places where there were just plain civilians. So there was a time in Sri Lanka, fortunately not now, that parents thought that it's better for the mother and the father to go in different buses to work. Because it was better that if one person would survive a possible bomb blast. And then at the same time, our government treated all the people from the particular ethnic community, the Tamils, as terrorist suspects. So it was fair game to basically to arrest or abduct any Tamil and say that, oh, you are likely to be a terrorist. So you can be arrested, kept in prison for a long time, five years, ten years, without any charges. You can be tortured, and it's, it's quite fine to be tortured, to be beaten, to have your fingernails removed, lots of other horrible things, just to get information, or just for revenge, because someone else belonging to your community would have done, would have been responsible for setting off a bomb. So both sides thought that it's quite okay to attack civilians. And I think the, the sad thing is that the two ethnic groups, the people also thought it was okay to some extent. Many people thought it was okay. I usually say that we have different ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, and when I say different ethnic groups, uh, I mean that uh, we dress very differently when we don't dress in the Western way. You know, our traditional dresses are very different. The food we eat is very different. The way we celebrate our weddings are very different. The way we have our funerals are very different. Even our architecture is very different. So that's why we feel that we are very different people. We have very different identities. And the language we speak are very different. We, one group speaks Sinhalese, the other group speaks Tamil. And we even have different characters for our two languages. They struggle for equality. First, I think in the 1960s in particular, in a very peaceful, democratic way, they borrowed, I think, from Gandhi, the terminology. They used the word Satyagraha. But they were very badly treated when they had the peaceful protest. And I think that led the failure of peaceful protest, led to armed militancy, which, as I mentioned later on, became very brutal, very violent. This is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit radio production. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and this program and eight years of other programs are available at northernspiritradio.org for listening and download. You can also order CDs of the programs, post comments, find links to our guests, and of course, you can make a donation. And your generous donations make all the difference. Especially, I'd like you to remember to support your local community radio station, bringing you music and news and programs the rest of the media gloss over. 
Thanks to them for carrying this program, and please show them your appreciation and support. We were just listening to a few brief excerpts from a speech by Ruki Fernando on April 21st, hosted by Eau Claire's Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Two days later, I sat down with Ruki, Sri Lankan human rights and peace activist and organizer, to fill in the picture of his work and that which motivates and supports him on the front lines of the Sri Lankan conflict. Ruki, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm very happy to join. It's wonderful you to make this trip. I understand you've done a number of trips to the U.S. and I think probably the rest of the world. How did you get started with these international trips? Do you have a special connection that facilitates your visiting throughout the world? Well, I think there are people around the world who are interested in me personally, who are concerned about me and interested in what I do. But there are more broadly, there are lots of people in the world who are interested in the people of Sri Lanka and what's happening in Sri Lanka, the bad things and the good things that are being done to fix the bad things. So that's why I get invited to talk about those things. And I'm always very happy to go and talk to people and have conversations. And are you independently rich that you can afford to travel all across the world like this? Not really. I think all my trips overseas, except I think three within Asia, where I went for weddings and an ordination of a friend like that, everything else has been paid for by whoever would invite me. I've been very lucky to have that. I was very interested in a number of the things that you said as part of this talk at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Mm -hmm. Amongst the things that you didn't talk about that I'd like to hear more about is what are the specifics of this peace work that you're doing? How do you actually do it while you're there? I mean, I know you can come here and talk and that gets some support. Is that your main function or do you go accompaniment? What what do you actually do? Well, uh, I think if I wasn't doing anything much back in Sri Lanka, no one would be interested to invite me. I think that's the very simple thing. So most of my work is actually 80%, 90% would be in Sri Lanka. So in the last six years or so, one of the things I have been trying to do is to try to document uh, in detail what's been happening uh, in relation to the war and after the war in Sri Lanka to the people who were most affected by the war. For example, people who were displaced, people who had family members killed, people who had family members disappeared, uh, people who are in prison and their family members. Uh, so I would go out and uh, talk to these people and sometimes uh, I mean, person, families of those people as well and visit those areas and spend a lot of time in the areas uh, affected by the war, which is particularly the north and eastern part of Sri Lanka. And then I would try to talk about those stories when I go back to my own place, what I have seen, what I have heard. When I go back to Colombo, my own place, I would talk to my friends, I would talk at conferences or events, uh, I would talk to media sometimes, giving interviews. I would write myself, although I was never a professional journalist, uh, but I basically like to write what I hear, what I see, what I feel and think about, what I see and hear. And that's the same thing that I essentially do when I travel abroad as well. I talk about these things. But in addition to that, I have also been doing uh, some protection work. We had many people in Sri Lanka who actually had their lives in danger, particularly journalists and human rights activists. Some of them actually happen to be my good friends and colleagues, and that's how I actually got involved in that dimension of my work. Because when a friend of mine, a colleague who was an activist, said that, no, I'm scared and I'm being hunted, 
I need a place, safe place to stay. So I had to respond to that. So I tried to ask around and see where such a possible place could be. And then more and more people uh, asked for that kind of support. And then other people who I didn't know personally and who didn't know me personally also maybe heard uh, that I was uh, involved in doing that kind of work. And they also asked me for support. So we helped a large number of people actually essentially hide uh, within Sri Lanka. And some of them I helped to send abroad as well. A couple of them are actually in the U.S., and I will be visiting them, a uh, couple of them later on, uh, after my visit here in uh, Eau Claire. And another part of my work has been to physically accompany some of those people. like Because if they're tra- uh, scared to travel alone, they feel safer if you have someone to go with them. So I have personally accompanied some of them. Uh, I've also had a group of friends and colleagues uh, who I used to work very closely with, who used to do that kind of accompaniment. We had some people from outside international organizations who used to do that. Uh, we had some even members of the diplomatic community uh, in Colombo who used to help us with that kind of accompaniment. I also used to do training programs on human rights to a wide ranging range of people, to lawyers, uh, to other human rights activists, to journalists, to students in schools and universities, to religious clergy. And then I also ran an internship program where I would welcome and invite young people, particularly those teenagers, 18, 19, 20, early 20s, to come, uh, some after school, some in university, some after university, so they can experience uh, some of the work uh, that I was doing, but also the background to the work that I was doing, uh, which was essentially the very tragic and the bad things uh, that has been happening in Sri Lanka. So a very important part of the internship programs was for these uh, young students to see for themselves and hear for themselves. Uh, so I would take them along with me to the war-affected areas to see the damage that has been done. And I would take them with me when I would visit people affected by the war, political prisoners uh, in prison. So they would have to go to prison to visit them. They would have to meet with families of people who had disappeared or families of people who had been killed. Uh, they would have to meet with journalists whose life is at risk. Uh, So that was my main uh, focus of the internship program. And after seeing and hearing all those things, uh, I would encourage them to get involved in some small way. At the beginning, when they are with me, they would be working on the things that I would be working with. But some of them have gone on to do their own things afterwards, and I'm very happy about that. Some of those students are also from overseas, but uh, I think 80-90% of my interns have been Sri Lankan. That was my main aim. But I also welcomed people from abroad. So part of my work also turned out to be in the last two years or so to facilitate visits by various people. So, for example, student groups from the US and also from other countries would contact me and say, we'd like to visit and do some research on people who are displaced in Sri Lanka or people who have disappeared in Sri Lanka or people, journalists who are at risk in Sri Lanka. So I would try to help them to come to Sri Lanka and make arrangements and particularly take them to areas, uh, uh, the war-affected areas, or arrange interviews with people who are directly being affected, sometimes help in translation. And that has been journalists, uh, researchers from international organizations, sometimes even diplomats, uh, sometimes uh, student groups, and writers, artists, uh, all kinds of people. In your talk, one of the things that you said is that you're lucky. I mean, a number of the people had to flee the country, go outside, and you've accompanied, mm-hmm. help them, help protect them, you've accompanied them. 
why do you have special immunity to the forces of repression or suppression mm-hmm. in the country? Is there something special about you that is your visibility high enough mm-hmm. that you know they won't bother to take you down? Well, people who are much more prominent as human rights activists, uh, as journalists, uh, have been killed and have been attacked, much, much more prominent, and who have been working for many more years than I have been working. So I don't think that is by itself is a guarantee. But I certainly think my connections locally in Sri Lanka uh, with some church groups, with lawyers, uh, and also my international connections with the friends I have, with the international organizations that I work with, with the UN, uh, some of the UN officials I know, some of the diplomats I know, I think uh, acts as a little bit of a deterrent. But I would say very humbly that uh, actually the main reason is that maybe the the government thinks that they would be doing more harm to themselves by doing something bad to me than actually the damage that I do to their work. So that means uh, my work has some effect, but not a very strong effect to do serious damage to the government. So that's why maybe they think that it is better if they allow me to do the little that I'm doing. I'd like it, Ruki, if you could say some of the things about how the government there works. I believe it's been run by Buddhists, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the past. And one of the things that we tend to think here in the U.S. is if you're a Buddhist, you're going to be fair and peaceful and, you know, that Mm -hmm. you couldn't have problems. So the fact that this conflict in Sri Lanka came up, do the Buddhists have their part in it Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, the Hindu, the perhaps Muslim, the Christian Mm -hmm. group which you represent? Is there something that the Buddhists there do wrong? They're not perfect? Well, uh, I have a little bit of understanding of Buddhism. And from my understanding of Buddhism, uh, the way our rulers who are predominantly Buddhist function is certainly not Buddhist. It's not a Buddhist way. Neither is it a Christian way or a Hindu way or Islamic way or a Sikh way or any other religious faith tradition that I know of. So it's very, because I believe that the Buddhist way, like you said, is a very peaceful, non-violent, you know, based on Ahimsa, Mitta, Karuna way. And that I, I don't certainly see that in the policies and the laws that we have. And I don't see that in the practice and the behavior. Uh, I don't think Buddhist rulers could wage a war that was so brutal as we had in uh, Sri Lanka with absolute disregard for civilian lives. I don't think they could take people in arrest and detain people without any charges for so long, for years and years. I don't think they would torture people in prison the way they do in Sri Lanka if they were real Buddhist. One of the questions that sits with me, the government has enough power there that if they don't want to have your voice, have ears to hear it, they can make you disappear, they can close you down, they maybe have laws about Mm -hmm. what can be presented in the media how does that function? What limitations are there? And in the U.S., we're used to thinking we have freedom of speech. Well, we do have freedom of speech uh, to some extent. Uh, but the problem is we have very little freedom after speech, uh, especially if that speech, uh, whether it's writing or talking or expressing views in another way, happens to be very critical of the present government. Then we have very little freedom. So there are people who are still uh, very critical of the government who like to write and uh, report as they see it and as they feel and think. But they are very, very few. Because in the past, the government has killed many journalists, many activists who spoke their mind, uh, who reported as they saw it and as they heard it. And they have threatened many others, assaulted uh, journalists very seriously. They have put journalists and human rights activists in prison 
so because of all that many people who managed to survive have subjected themselves to uh, self censorship they think uh, why should we write uh, all of these things and suffer so much and be killed it's better to draw a softer line and not to say things as we see it and as we hear it and they also face pressure from their family members there are many mothers and uh, fathers and uh, husbands and wives and even children who would tell their journalistic uh, or activist family member don't do all of these things no you will get killed see what happened to x and see what happened to y and z no do you want that to happen and do you want us to suffer my family members also tell me that so there's pressure also from within your own family and your own friends not to go to that extent one of the things that you mentioned in your talk is that maybe you're a little bit different than the average activist and that you don't have wife and kids and so maybe that gives you a little bit more freedom you have maybe brothers sisters parents but i guess if you you're worrying about your kids would you feel less free to be outspoken to risk disappearing if you had kids uh well i think it's difficult to put myself into that situation and answer that i think i'll have to play it by ear if that situation comes but what i do know is that many people who have kids who are my friends and colleagues are actually very very worried and that always uh, becomes a factor but then the other part of it is that there are many activists and journalists who have kids and uh, who have spouses a husband or wife or partner and then they are still as active or even more active than me so i guess it works a lot on the individual's own position and there are family members who are very supportive Uh, i know some family members like some parents some children some partners they really uh, encourage uh, people to go out and do what they would like to do what they what their conscience tells them to do what they believe in what are the means for you to get out your message is it all word of mouth or do you have access to tv radio newspapers magazines are all those places where you can put out your word because as you say the government doesn't like to have stuff that's critical of it out there and even in the US we don't recognize how much self censorship as well as perhaps government influence plays in there so what what are the ways in which you can get out the word well i write quite regularly to a citizens journalism website in sri lanka uh, so i think that's uh, one of my main uh, ways of getting word out Uh, but uh, some of my articles interviews have also been carried in mainstream uh, newspapers in sri lanka although that's very very rare couple of times i've gone on tv again that's very very rare I, from my memory only twice actually in the last 6 years but i also get involved in lots of other smaller discussions and conversations like 10 people 50 people 100 people where i give talks Uh, like public seminars workshops in schools villages in churches uh, so so that's another means that we get the word out and we also try to have like some public events like exhibitions uh, commemorations which are more means of getting a message out do most of the people in sri lanka know or believe what you have to say about the abuses by the government by the tamils or do they all vast swaths of the population do they just believe that the other people did some bad things they don't understand that my people did bad things i think you are very correct most people in sri lanka the particularly the sinhalese community very rightly believe about the abuses committed by the tamil militants particularly the ltte or known as the tamil tigers but many sinhalese people uh, don't believe uh, that the government and the military which is predominantly sinhalese 
committed abuses. So it's very difficult to convince people that actually the military is responsible for a large number of abuses, particularly against the Tamil people, but also a number of Sinhalese as well who have been critical of the government. But there's also a large number of the population, society, that think that uh, some of these abuses may have been committed, but it's justified because these terrorists were so bad, that was the only way to deal with it. And in that process, uh, collateral damage, or killing innocent civilians, arresting them, torturing them, disappearing them, is inevitable. So that we should not complain about such collateral damage to innocent civilians in the name of the greater good. So there, there is this part of the population as well who think that there is no other, there would have been no other alternative. And what were the complaints, the the concerns, the demands of the LTTE, the Tamil Tigers? What was it they were looking for? Is it independence, or what did they actually hope to achieve? Well, their primary demand was a separate state. They wanted a separate country. Uh, that was what they were fighting for. But I want to take the chance to elaborate a little bit more. Uh, I think the Tamil community in Sri Lanka was always discriminated. Uh, they were harassed and there were various atrocities commis- committed against them, uh, particularly in the areas such as language, uh, education, employment, uh, land. So they and they are, although they are minority in the whole of Sri Lanka, the northern province, uh, the majority are Tamils. And there's a, uh, the majority of the eastern province is also Tamils, historically. Uh, so they wanted a degree of self-governance for those two areas. Uh, they didn't want a separate country. In fact, in the 1960s, when they have a peaceful, democratic, uh, legitimate protest for equality and for power sharing, the demand was for a federal system of power sharing or autonomy for those two regions. And the name of the main Tamil party, the political party, was also the federal party. And the name itself suggests what they were demanding for and asking for. But because the peaceful and the non-violent protests were crushed very violently by the government uh, in the 60s, uh, early 70s, and because there was no sensitivity and no response for a demand for power sharing and autonomy, these two, the demand for a power sharing autonomy became a demand for a separate state. And the peaceful way of struggling turned into a violent way of struggling with armed groups coming up. So I think it's important to understand uh, that context, although personally I still don't feel feel that a separate country is a viable option right now for us. And I still, I strongly believe that uh, the violent and the armed way of struggling uh, does not work and it is not the correct way. But I think it's important to understand how those two came about and what went before that. In your talk, you referred, Rookie, to how very differently the end of the war is viewed. By some, it's viewed as, okay, we've got peace, we're no longer struggling. Mm-hmm. As some people, it's viewed as defeat and annihilation. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah, we've got peace because all of the people who were, had our concern were killed. Mm-hmm. How widespread, by what percent of the population, are those various viewpoints held? I think a large number of the Sinhalese population, the vast majority of the Sinhalese population, believes that the ending of the war is something to celebrate. And the vast majority of the Tamil population believes it's something to mourn and grieve. And then there is the the exceptional few, which believe otherwise in both communities. But by and large, uh, the Sinhalese community towards the line of the government. The Sinhalese are about three-quarter of the population, and the Tamils are about, I think, 16-17% of the population now. 
Could you say something about the organization or how organizationally this, I guess, self-examination and piecework is carried out through the nation? Is it just individuals here and there doing this? I mean, you have people you work with. You certainly know other activists. Can you work as an organization or does the government clamp down as soon as you're part of an organization? Well, there has been organizations like non-governmental organizations that have been established a long time ago. Like the organization I was working from for five years, 2007 to 12, was established, I think, in 1982. So they have been there for a long time. And there are many such organizations in the capital, Colombo, but in, even in the war-affected areas like Jaffna in the north, even in other parts of the country. And most of these organizations have full-time staff working. Like I worked full-time uh, as a staffer for five years. But then there are also other voluntary organizations who don't have staff, who don't have even an office maybe, but who have members and people who are interested, who are part of that uh, movement or that group who work. So it's a combination of all these things. Uh, then we do have some professional organizations like groups of lawyers, groups of journalists who get together and form their organization groups of judges, uh, trade unions, uh, student organizations. There are faith-based organizations. There are interfaith organizations. So there are a variety of groups, very diverse groups. And we have managed to work uh, despite the restrictions and the threats and intrusions uh, from the government. Of course, I know you grew up Catholic, identify as a Christian, which in some ways put you religiously in an extreme minority in the country. Mm -hmm. I also wondered, in the U.S., I think because there's been a government hype, really, about how bad Muslims are, that the Islamic faith is somehow a, a warrior faith mm -hmm. that all they want to do is holy war, so they go and kill people. Mm -hmm. The Islamic portion of Sri Lanka is pretty small, I think, do they tend one way or another? Or do they just tend to stay out of the issues? Or mm -hmm. is there some kind of united voice or position that they carry within the nation? Uh, well, I have very close Muslim friends and I have worked very closely with them. But I think Muslims by and large in Sri Lanka, in the context of the war and the conflict, have been victims. They were not asking for anything like the Tamils at the beginning of the war. They just wanted to be left alone and do their work, uh, carry on with their lives. But the Tamil militants, particularly the LTT, has been very violent towards the Muslims. There was about almost, I think, 100,000 Muslims living in the northern province. And in 1990, the LTT asked all of them to leave. It was like ethnic cleansing. And then the LTT also attacked mosques where Muslim people were praying and killed many of them. So the Muslims in many ways were victims of the war. And in that context, they tried to say that, no, we, our aspirations, our needs should also be taken into consideration. So now, for example, they are trying hard to go back to the northern province after the end of the war. And they are asking for assistance. And they are also appealing to the Tamil community to recognize the fact that they were chased away and to welcome them back. So it's not only providing them the physical housing and that uh, financial assistance to start livelihoods, but it's also the more emotional, uh, mental kind of uh, the feeling and that they are looking for a feeling of being welcomed back from a place that they were very unjustly and very tragically chased away from. And the Muslims are about 8% of the population, I think. And they are a little bit unique because they identify themselves as ethno-religious group in Sri Lanka. They identify themselves as a particular ethnic community. And they say, we are not Sinhalese, we are not Tamils. Don't say we are Sinhalese or don't say we are Tamil. Some of the Muslims speak Sinhalese, some speak Tamil, some speak both. 
Some speak English as well, but they say that is a language we speak. That does not mean we are Sinhalese or Mus- uh, Tamils. We are Muslims. Whereas for the others, for Sinhalese, there are Buddhist and Christians. For the Tamils, there are Hindus and Christians. And then again, Christians are the religious community in Sri Lanka that cuts across both the Sinhalese and the Tamils. That brings me to something that's really important for me to understand, Ruki, and that is how you got involved in this. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned in your talk, there's plenty of Christians who don't take your point of view. Perhaps they react very strongly against mm-hmm. your point of view and wish you would shut up. And mm-hmm. So how did you get so involved in this? Is this something you get from your parents? Is it mm-hmm. church teaching or mm-hmm. is were there some seminal experiences mm-hmm. that changed your point of view? My involvement started with being part of a student group called YCS, Young Christian Students. So I was a member for about five years while I was in school. And then after that, I worked about three, four years as a volunteer. And then later on, I also had the chance to work full-time as the Asian coordinator, at which time I was based in the Philippines and traveled a lot in Asia. So I think that was my starting point. And I was also very lucky to uh, encounter some mentors, particularly Christian clergy. There was a, one priest called Father Tissabalasuri who passed away in January this year, who was very dear to me and who was certainly one of my mentors. And there were many others like that. There were people I had not met, but I had only read about. So they all had a big influence on me. And yes, certainly church teachings, uh, Catholic social teachings, and the biblical uh, various uh, things in the Bible. But the interesting thing is that I used to go to Sunday school, follow catechism. I used to follow, learn Christianity in my school as a religious subject. My parents were Catholic, uh, very devoted Catholics. But I only started to learn about Catholic social teachings, about the liberation dimension of Christianity, uh, about loving your neighbor and about uh, social justice and all that, after I joined the YCS, the student group. So it is almost a very well-kept secret of the broader Catholic Church. I never heard about this when I went to Mass every day, every Sunday. I also used to work in the church as an altar server and all that, but uh, that wasn't what inspired me. I also grew up Catholic and actually had a very good experience of it. Like you, I didn't hear a lot about that social dimension, although there is a whole strong portion of Catholicism in the United States, which is very peace and justice activist Mm -hmm. and very involved in that. So I know that that portion existed and Mm -hmm. exists, and I'm very thankful for it. One of the things that I found as I went on, and one of the reasons I became a Quaker is my theology, it didn't match my theology Mm -hmm. that I internally was discovering. Does the theology play much in your view? Or, I mean, to some degree, as you mentioned in the talk, there are good people, Buddhist and atheist and everyone doing good work. Do you think that Catholicism plays some important part in understanding, motivating you, and supporting you in this work? Certainly, no. I think it's uh, the my faith is what gives me motivation and also gives me strength, uh, particularly when I feel very upset and threatened, and it's uh, what uh, keeps me going. And also the broader community. I work with some church-based groups, uh, not Catholics, but also Anglicans and Methodists and others, more ecumenically. And there are lay people, women, men, uh, a priest, uh, even a bishop, who is very supportive uh, towards my work, with whom I work very closely with. And I actually think that my links, uh, strong links uh, with some parts of the institutional church, gives me also some physical safety. And in fact, 
when I was facing physical threats, there were many church institutions which offered me shelter. And many of the people that I have helped to hide, uh, Buddhists, uh, atheists uh, and all of them, Hindus, I have asked help from church institutions. And there have been many priests, many sisters, uh, many lay people who have been willing to offer them shelter. Of course, many have refused uh, because they were scared. But I would like to highlight the, the many maybe not so many in the overall context, a small percentage in the overall context, but still a significant number who have been willing to do that and who offer me and many others support. And together we offer each other support, I think. I want to come back to talk about Buddhists again. We have this perception in the United States, and I think it's a perception you share, that Buddhism teaches this peaceful way. Mm-hmm. So it's all the more lamentable that people who represent themselves as Buddhists in positions of power, and I, mm-hmm. we think power corrupts, right? Mm-hmm. That they, as Buddhists, are doing horrific things. On the more local level, the Sangalese that uh, you know, who are Buddhists, who are devout Buddhists, is that likely to raise their concern about the bad things that the government does? Or like so many Christians in the United States, they say, well, it's Christian, it couldn't be bad. You know, and just do they engage in that kind of self-examination and governmental examination? Well, unfortunately, no, because I think for many Buddhists, they go to the temple, they do the puja, but that's it. They don't apply it to the day-to-day lives uh, and to the lives of people around them. And I think it's not a problem limited to Buddhists. I think it's a problem also with Christians and Hindus and people who are Islamic faith and various other faiths. The faith or the religion uh, is very separated from day-to-day lives. So that's why I very strongly believe, you know, in my, I think I mentioned in one or two of my talks, that it's very important to politicize spirituality or to politicize our faith or to politicize our religions. Because our religions has to be linked to issues like education, to healthcare, to housing, to war and peace and all of that. To gun control or to immigrants or refugees. All of that is very linked to our faith and to our religion and our spirituality. So that is why what I mean by saying politicize religions and spirituality. You know? And on the other hand, the challenge is then to make our, to spiritualize our politics so that our political decisions our decision makers, our laws, our policies, our practices, our institutions reflect Buddhist values or Christian values or Hindu values, which will care about all people, which will treat with all people equally, which will respect the dignity of each and every person, irrespective of that person's color or religion or anything. And for me, it is very easy to reflect about that from a Christian perspective, because for me as a Christian, I think I should live well in this life. And when I finish this life, I'm going to be asked, uh, what did you do to the person who was hungry? Uh, What did you do to the person who was in prison unjustly? I'm not going to be asked, uh, how many times did you go to church? How many hours uh, did you pray? And I'm not going to be asked, what was the religion of that prisoner? Was he a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian? I'm not going to be asked, the person who was hungry... Was he or she a, a no, Buddhist or a Hindu or Islam? Was he a Sri Lankan or an American? Those are not questions that I'm going to be asked according to my religion. I'm just going to be asked, a person was hungry, a person was in prison, what did you do? You probably get some pushback from some of my listeners. Some of the folks who listen to Spirit in Action, while very much on the same page with you with respect to peace and justice, I'm sure that many of my listeners probably validly think that religion is too easily used to manipulate the masses. You certainly have heard the phrase, and I've heard it far too much for my own comfort, God bless America. Mm -hmm. 
God Bless America obviously has this other side of the statement that isn't completed, and nobody else. I mean, it's like, bless us, and it's like we pray for victory of our army. Well, that means that we're praying that they lose and get killed. Mark Twain wrote a wonderful short story called The War Prayer. You should look it up. It's delightful, ironic view of how that prayer looks from the other side, maybe from the divine side. So some of the pushback that you'll get would be people saying, no, as soon as you put religion in government, including Buddhists in government, Mm -hmm. it becomes corrupted and it becomes a tool to manipulate the masses. Well, I mean, I don't mean religious as religious clergy or religious institutions should get directly involved in direct governance. What I'm saying is that religious values that we proclaim or we claim to adhere to Uh, should be reflected uh, in governance, should be reflected in the laws that we have. So if there's any particular law that we feel is against Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism, we should change that law to make it more Buddhist or make it more Christian. But that effectively means that making our laws uh, care about human beings and treating everyone equally and respecting their dignity and treating everyone as your own brother or sister, as your own daughter or son or your own mother or father or your own partner or... so. That's what it means in the end, I think. You said that when you die, the question you'll be asked will be, you know, who did you feed, who did you visit in prison? You won't be asked American, etc. The way I was raised as a Catholic, and this has, I think, changed significantly since my childhood, so I'm not saying this is true of Catholics today, but I'm pretty sure when I was a child, I was told that you're going to be asked, were you a Catholic? Admission to paradise is only if your answer was yes. So... That question is no longer operational for you. Are, you. are you some kind of a universalist Christian? Do you think that Buddhists get accepted too? I mean, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and atheists, do they all get welcomed in the afterlife? I think so. Because according to the criteria that I have learned, and this is not mine, this is in the Bible. This is what it says in the Bible. And I think we moved, at least uh, some of us and large number of us, in Sri Lanka to accept, and in other countries as well, to accept that we don't have the one and only truth. For far too long, Christians, or particularly even within the Christian community, Catholics, thought that we have the one and only truth. We are superior and others are a little bit lesser than us. But I think some of us at least are moving away from that and learning to accept that, yes, we we think we have the truth, but others think the same. So we may both be right, we may both be wrong. So, So let's accept that and let's value and respect and appreciate and also go go beyond and let's allow ourselves even to be enriched uh, by Buddhism and by people who are atheists, by indigenous people's spiritualities. Let us be enriched. Let us not only be enriched by the Christian heritage. I love the work that you're doing, Ruki. I'm wondering if maybe you feel optimistic from day to day or pessimistic from day to day. How much hope do you think there is for a true healing of the spirit and healing of the rifts in the different communities? Do you see a time down the road, 10 years, 20 years, where you think that the healing will have taken place? Actually, in Sri Lanka, I don't see anything happening very soon, very sadly. I think it will take a long time in my country uh, for us to have real serious reconciliation where the communities will really relate to each other at an equal level and respect each other and appreciate each other. I also feel that for our government to change, it will take a long time. But I think we've had other countries uh, in similar situations. We've had countries like Philippines, which have been under dictatorships. Uh, we've had South Africa under apartheid. We had countries like in Latin America, like Argentina, Guatemala, many others under very brutal dictatorships. 
things are not perfect in those countries uh, but they've certainly moved on and i think they are not as bad as they used to be certainly in argentina or in south africa or in philippines so those processes took long time decades and it involved uh, many sacrifices by uh, many people who were committed to bring about that change even if they thought that they would uh, not see it in their lifetime so i on one hand i get inspired and i get some hope and courage from that what's happened outside my own country but also the small things that are happening in my country that like i said you no know, the many or rather the few journalists who still dare to write the truth as they see it as they hear it and as they think the few judges who defy the threatening phone calls they get from politicians and give decisions uh, that they think is based on law and on the based on their conscience the lawyers few lawyers who defend people who are accused of being terrorists and who try to promote rule of law so the few clergy christian buddhist or muslim hindu who try to apply their faith to everyday problems that we face in sri lanka and other parts of the world so i think there are many people like that who are signs of hope and who give me uh, some positive hope when i feel very hopeless and when i feel very frustrated which is quite often actually and from within sri lanka even people like who live outside sri lanka americans or indians or malaysians or whoever who are still interested in what happens in sri lanka who care about people in sri lanka and who have helped in a variety of ways give me hope and how should those people connect with you and how can they be of support to what's happening in sri lanka uh, people from the us the people listening to this program mm-hmm. there's a number of spirit mm-hmm. in action listeners mm-hmm. who i'm sure their hearts go out to you how can mm-hmm. their hands and mouths be also of support uh, well i think the Uh, by listening to this program their ears have been <laughs> reached out to me and to sri lanka and to people i work with and people you know all the people in sri lanka so that's the first step already uh, and i think uh, i would be very happy to be in touch uh, with any listeners uh, i can tell my email it's ruk i i i that's ruk triple i at gmail.com i would be very happy to be in touch and communicate with uh, any people but and i think it's one important thing is to be more aware of what's really happening and that's very difficult uh, that's not easy as i make it out to be for an american living in wisconsin or anywhere else to know about what's really happening in sri lanka because your newspapers don't report it your tv and radio the mainstream ones don't report it possibly not even the mainstream news websites so you really need to make an effort if you want to really know what's happening in sri lanka or for that matter in any other part of the world so that involves effort and energy and sacrifice of your time so i would encourage people to actually to make that sacrifice if you are interested go to uh, some websites uh, that gives alternative news about sri lanka go to a website like amnesty international uh, human rights watch which are very well known organizations and of course if someone writes to me uh, i'll be able to give a lot more links and uh, websites that people could get information from and then visit sri lanka you know i i know people like to go for holidays and sri lanka has been named the number one tourist destination by the lonely planet a couple of years back by the new york times as well but i would encourage people to visit but also not to just to become the very conventional tourist who will just go to the beach and the mountains and the historical sites and just uh, say oh this is a wonderful land it is actually it's a very beautiful land and there you will find many hospitable people who are very friendly and helpful but uh, there are also people who are suffering there are also people who are subjected to a lot of injustices but i think people who visit as human beings not purely technical tourists should also see that part of sri lanka 
And again, I'm very happy to help people to see that part and hear that part by arranging meetings, visits, making suggestions and all that. If anyone actually wants to do that, it can be individual, one person, it can be two people, it can be a group of 10 people who come as a group, as a tour group. So I think it's very possible to do a kind of alternative tourism, which will help you to learn about really what's happening. That can potentially lead to a higher involvement. You can do some volunteer work for one week or one month or whatever. You can come back to US and uh, have an exhibition about uh, some of the photos you've taken in Sri Lanka about the situation of people who are displaced, about the families of people who have disappeared. You can write to a blog or to a letters to an editor. Or... So you can do things like that starting off. No? And I would encourage, particularly if there are any young students, no, to, to also to visit and to see about whether you can write about, look at Sri Lanka in terms of the research that you do, your assignments and things like that. And in fact, one of the main reason I'm here in Wisconsin is because a group of students from the university here came to Sri Lanka last year to do that kind of a research to see what the interfaith initiatives there are in Sri Lanka after the war. And they are writing about it, talking about it. Some of them made presentations in their community about what they saw and heard. And they invited me to come here. So that's the kind of thing I think that's possible. Of course, I understand uh, it's not possible for everyone to do big things. But I think uh, small things and being sensitive and being in touch and looking for alternative information is possible. Well, we're thankful, Rookie, that there are people like you doing big things, dedicating their lives in a direction that's going to make healing of Sri Lanka and I think inspiration for the world. I don't know that when Gandhi was doing his work in India or the Bajaj Khan, when he was doing his work in what is now known as Pakistan, I don't know that when they were doing their work, they were thinking of changing the world. They were thinking of changing their communities. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a blessed event to see you working to make your community the best community and perhaps to become, and may you live long enough to see this, mm -hmm. uh, inspiration to the world. So thank you so much for that work, and thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for inviting me, and this in itself is a sense of encouragement and support, being invited to share and have this conversation. So thank you again, and all the best. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.